before I start, I realized I forgot to make an announcement in the first service, so I don't want to forget it again. Uh, Tuesday, this Tuesday night is we're having one of our Bible institutes, and if you don't mind, I'd like you guys to tell the people in the first service somehow that we're having a Bible institute tomorrow, because here's what it's about. It's about the last great deception of mankind. How many would be curious to know what does the Bible say about the last great deception that will hit mankind? See your hands? Okay, Tuesday night, uh, come out and... Go online, maybe go on your Facebook uh, site or whatever, and spread the word that it will be happening this Tuesday. I forgot to tell the first service. All right, we're in this series called Life in a Word, and what I've said each week is that sometimes there's a given season in our life where sometimes our entire life could be summarized by one word. And we've looked at some of these words up to this point, and each week we have looked at one of the apostles as their life descriptive of a word. So... Today we're going to deal with the Apostle Peter, but before I get started with him, uh, let me talk to you about a, a girl, a 16-year-old girl. Her name is Shannon, and Shannon uh, had a really nice family. She was very successful in school, very attractive, very intelligent, all those kinds of things, very happy young 16-year-old girl. And uh, then she came to a point in life where not once but two times she tried to commit suicide. So... The thing that comes to, you know, your mind and mine is, is like, why would a girl with such a good family background, who was happy, who was successful in school, what could possibly bring her to the place where she would try suicide not once but twice? Well, when you hear the rest of Shannon's story, it, it's really not at all hard to understand. Shannon was going to school one morning. She was driving in her car. Um, she looked up in the mirror to just adjust her lipstick, and she heard a thud. She lived on a country road area, uh, thought, well, perhaps it was an animal or something that had wandered out in the road, and when she stopped her car and got out, she found a lady on a bicycle, and the lady was dead. And that's what brought a, 60, a happy 16-year-old girl to the place of trying to commit suicide twice. Now, think about this. She knew it was an accident. There was no intent on her part. But the guilt that she felt, the remorse and the guilt, she couldn't shake it. And it brought her to the place where evidently she felt it would be easier to die than to live with the pain that she felt as a result of this guilt. Guilt is a mysterious thing, folks, in human beings. I, I, I'm not trying to change the subject too dramatically, but bear with me. How many of you are cat owners? Can I see your hands? Man, I need to pray for you all. I, <laughs> Okay, at least you'll understand. You cat owners know this. Your cat will go out and stalk a, a mouse or, or anything, you know, a little bird, a little chipmunk. They'll stalk them. They'll sneak up around, you know, and then when just the right moment comes, they strike, and they'll, they'll kill that mouse, and then they'll flip it around in the air and maybe even bring it back to you hanging out of its mouth, and they're proud, they're proud of what they've done, and they will go and do it again and again and again. And they evidently don't feel any remorse at all. They feel quite proud of themselves. Now, I use this silly example to show that there's something very distinctive about human beings, this capacity we have to feel something called guilt. And guilt is very powerful. And when guilt is not sufficiently resolved in human beings... It always is damaging. It, it always leaves us with more or less fear and anxiety. It kind of 
brings a little bit of low-grade depression sometimes, sometimes frustration and anger. The root of many in addiction was the inability to escape the uncomfortable feelings that one had inside because of unresolved guilt, and so we sought out something that could alter our mood. Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's making money, maybe it's sex, but the addiction starts by just trying to alter this uncomfortable feeling that we have within us, but the real root of the uncomfortable feeling is guilt that we don't know how to resolve. I'm going to suggest that of all the people that have ever felt guilt, and everybody probably has, Peter might have felt more guilt than anyone. In all the lists of the apostles, Peter is always the first on the list. Jesus chose Peter to be the leader of the other apostles. On three different occasions, Jesus took Peter, James, John. They were inner circle, but it was always Peter. One time when Jesus raised this little girl named uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead, he took Peter, James, John. Peter got to see miracles that none of the other apostles did. When, when Jesus was transfigured, when he let his inner divinity shine out through his skin in blinding light, and when Moses and Elijah, who had been long departed, Moses some 1,500 years and Elijah some 800 years, but they were very much alive, it was Peter that was allowed to witness that miracle, Peter, James, and John. When Jesus was just about to be arrested and he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was about to pray his last prayer to prepare himself for the cross. He says to Peter, James, and John, come with me. Watch with me for a little while. So, so Peter had a very special place. When Jesus met Peter, he, he called him the rock. <laughs> and yet Peter, if you know much about him in the Bible, he was not quite a rock. He was kind of an impulsive guy. He would blurt things out. He would do things. And he would believe that he was a little bit stronger and a little bit better than maybe what he really was. And I think we all have that kind of propensity because we all want to believe we are what we would like to be instead of what we really are. Nevertheless, Jesus chose him, no denying that, to be the leader. Now I'm going to take you to the very last night that Jesus is with his disciples. The three-and-a-half-year ministry is over. The, the disciples, like Peter, have seen hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles. They've seen three different times where Jesus rose people back from the dead. They've seen Jesus walk on water during a storm. They've seen him still a storm with a word, open blinded eyes, heal crippled limbs, multiply a few loaves of bread and fish to feed Five to 15,000 people, multitudes of miracles. They've seen all of this. Jesus, at the same time, has told them repeatedly through his ministry that ultimately he would go to Jerusalem, he would be rejected by the leaders, and he would be crucified, but that he would rise again on the third day. He told them this in advance. He predicted his own death. He predicted how it would occur. He predicted each time that he would rise again from the grave. So here we come to the very last night that Jesus is with his disciples. So if you don't mind, turn with me in those Bibles that are near you on the chair to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And we're kind of, as we read this, in the backdrop of our minds, we're asking the question, it's like, you know, where does guilt come from? Why, why do we have it? What, what good is it meant to do? What's the ultimate source of guilt? Why do we even feel it, in other words? Because we said that the animal kingdom doesn't feel it. But let's pick up reading in Luke 22, verse 7. And to give you the context, verse 7, 
It says, the day for the feast of unleavened bread came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, here it was some 1,500 years since the Passover was instituted. God gave it to Moses. Israelites were in the bondage in Egypt, and he brought all the plagues on the Egyptians. And then the last plague was the death angel that came through. And if you didn't have blood on the top of your door and on the sides of your door, there was a result of a, a spotless lamb that had been sacrificed. Well, then the death angel visited your household, and the firstborn son would die. So the Israelites have been celebrating the Passover because God told them to for 1,500 years. Hundreds, maybe thousands of lambs, probably thousands of lambs had died. But the lambs didn't really exactly mean anything because Jesus was the ultimate lamb. It was going to take an innocent sacrifice to break the power of sin in the world, to reconcile human beings to a trusting relationship back with God. All that was encapsulated in Jesus being the Passover lamb himself. And so Jesus dies on the cross on the Passover day. He is the, the sacrifice. He's the fulfillment. So that's the context. Now let's read a few more verses. Jump, if you would, to verse 15 and 16. Jesus speaking, he says, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I, what? Suffer. So he, he's again reminding them, he's going to suffer, he's going to go to the cross, he's going to die. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We'll pause there. So he's telling them how much this meal means to him. He's telling these men that he's poured his life into for three and a half years, he said, this is the last time I'm going to eat with you guys like this. And this, this means so much to me. Now, let me give you a little more background of what happened on this same evening. Earlier in the evening, John chapter 13 tells us, and John chapter 13 through 17 all happened the last evening that Jesus is with his disciples. But in the 13th chapter, the disciples all arrive at this place, and no one is giving the proper care to guests. In other words, in those days, when you came to somebody's house... Um, you would get a bowl of water and you would wash their feet. That was a courtesy that you gave to people. It was very dusty and dry. So the disciples all come in there and nobody's washing anyone's feet. So Jesus, John 13 tells us, he washes all the disciples' feet. Now look at what else happens in the night. Let's go back to Luke 22. Now you know that that happened. Look first at verse 21. Jesus speaking. He says, but look, the hand of the one who betrays me is with me on the table. So that night, after Jesus said how important this meal is to him, after he's washed the disciples' feet, he says, the one that's going to betray me is right here, right here sitting at the table. And if you know the other Gospels, the disciples are also saying, is it me, is it me, is it him, is it who? And so they're going around, they're quite disturbed, and of course he knows it's Judas, and he tells Judas ultimately in a whisper, go do the thing that you're going to do. In the same manner, he says to the disciples, you can read this in Matthew and in Mark, he says, this night the shepherd's going to be struck and all you sheep are going to be scattered. He says, you're all going to fall away from me tonight. So he's telling them that even though in their heart of hearts they believe they're going to be loyal to their Lord, he says, tonight you're all going to desert me, you're all going to run. It's within that context that this next thing occurs. Look at verse 24. A dispute also started among them over which of them was to be regarded as, you tell me, the greatest. Jesus has just washed their feet. He's just told them that his betrayer is right there. 
He's told them he's going to suffer and that they're all going to scatter. And they get into an argument at this Last Supper about which one of them is the dog, which one of them is the leader, which one of them is the greatest. Now, Peter, Peter knew that he was always the chosen leader. And so Peter starts barking up a bit because Jesus had said they would all fall away that night. They would all run. So look at Peter's reaction after they're fighting over who's the greatest. Turn, if you would, to verse 31. And Jesus now starts speaking to Peter because Peter had said, Lord, and if you read in Matthew and Mark, he said, even if everybody else betray, falls away from you, not me, Lord, I'll go with you even to death. So Jesus speaks up. He says, Simon, Simon, his name was Simon Peter, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you all, meaning all of the disciples, Satan has demanded to have, have you all to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, do what? Strengthen your brothers. Now, now, now look, here's Jesus saying, Satan's desire to put all of you guys to the test. And he's already said, you're going to fall away from me this night. And he's telling Peter in particular, Peter, especially you need to be on guard. And when you turn back, which is saying, you're going to fall just like the rest of them, Peter. But when you turn back, notice Jesus' confidence. that even though Peter's going to fall... He's going to turn back. He says, when you turn back, you give strength to your brothers. Look at Peter's reaction. Verse 33. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus replied, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied, denied three times that you know me. So you know the story probably. Jesus has said, you're going to deny me three times before this evening is over, Peter, before the sunrise. And Peter says, no way, no how. And you know that when Jesus is arrested and he's beaten, Peter's following in the distance. He's watching. Three different times they ask him if he knows Jesus, and three different times he denies him. And then finally, at the third denial, let me let you read it for yourself. Look at verse 61. It says at the at the, after the third denial, then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside, and what does it say he did? He wept bitterly. Guilt. Can you imagine the guilt that Peter could have felt? Jesus said in his teaching, he said, to whom much is given, much is required. Jesus had given more to Peter than to any. He was the chosen leader. Peter had boasted about it. The rest of them will deny you, Lord. They're, they're a little weaker, but not me. I'll go to the death with you. And he denies Jesus three times. And Jesus locks eyes with him. And he shatters. Now, you're not Peter. You haven't been chosen to be the Lord's number one apostle. But it could be that you know this experience. It could be that you know what it is to feel the weight of guilt and simultaneously to lock eyes, spiritually speaking, with Jesus. And when you see those eyes, you do not see condemnation. But what you see is compassion and mercy. And it's confusing and bewildering and sometimes hard to accept. All this, all this was going on that night inside of Peter. Listen, as we're considering 
What's the ultimate source of human guilt? Why do we feel this phenomenon called guilt? There are some psychologists that, that they spend all their time just trying to convince us as human beings that we shouldn't feel any guilt about anything, that that's the problem, that we're willing to accept you know, cultural mores and we're willing to allow ourselves to experience guilt, but there's no such thing as guilt. But that's not true, and you know it, and I know it, and every human that's ever lived and died knows it. We feel this because we're made in the image of God, and we are finely and delicately made inside. And when we do certain things that are contrary to our design and God's design for life, whether we know it or don't know it, it lodges. It lodges its protest within us. And unresolved guilt is extraordinarily destructive to the human soul. In fact, let me go further. It is impossible, hear me out on this, it is impossible to develop and become who God intends us to become and do what he intends us to do, to be fully human and fully alive. It is impossible unless we have learned the one singular way to resolve guilt, to be truly able to look at ourselves and say, I'm forgiven. To be truly able to look at those things that you and I have done, been involved in, that are so uncomfortable to us that we have tried every way that we know how to push them out of our memory. We are uncomfortable when a conversation even turns toward the matter or the subject. It's that thing that eats at us secretly that we wish would have never happened if we could go back in time. And yet somehow we've got to resolve this gnawing guilt. And if we don't, we live with anxiety. We live with low-grade depression, maybe some low-grade anger, fear, and a whole host of other things. Like I said, it can open itself up to addiction itself. So the ultimate source of our guilt is this. We are created by Christ and for Christ. We are made in his image. We are finely and delicately made inside. We are made to think and to feel and to behave like God. And when we knowingly or unknowingly live in discord with that design, it lodges inside us. But it's not always bad. I told you guys a story some, some weeks back about I had this 1970 Toyota Corolla I bought, brand new 70 Toyota Corolla. By about 1971, after about a year of having it, I killed that thing because I didn't understand it required oil. I really did truly do that. <laughs> but it should have had, I think it had, we were discussing this in the booth, it should have had that little light that pops on, you know, when, when you're low on oil, but we're not sure in those days they had it. Uh, if it came on, I didn't see it. Let me put it like that. But what if God has placed this capacity to feel guilt in us as a warning. It's a warning. It's like the red light on your dash is saying, that's destructive whether you understand it or not. That's going to hurt you ultimately or hurt somebody else. It, it's a warning mechanism so that we can avoid doing it or we can quickly resolve it in the one way it can be resolved and get past it so as not to do it again. Listen what David the psalmist, and David knew an awful lot about the interior struggles as a human being. He was not by any means a perfect man. He says, I know about my sins, and I cannot forget my terrible guilt. You are really the one I have sinned against, meaning God. Even though he sinned against human beings, he, he knew that it was ultimately God because God feels love for every human being. And when I hurt somebody else, I've hurt God because he loves them. He says, you are really the one I have sinned against. I have disobeyed you and have done wrong. He goes on. For my sins are gone over my head like a heavy load. They weigh too much for me. 
Here's what I know. I know that there are certain sins that occur in a human being's life that we don't ever quite feel completely over. We, we, we feel like, yeah, I know God forgives, but I'm not sure that it's allowable to forgive this. And I don't dare forgive myself. I feel like I've got to at least keep some punishing pressure on myself. And that load, if you keep that load, it will wear you down and it will keep you from developing in the way that God intends. But it's a load. It's a weight. It brought Shannon, a 16-year-old girl who had an accident, a tragic one, but an accident. It brought her to the place where she wanted to commit suicide. And I wonder if Peter might not have contemplated the same thing Judas did. He did commit suicide. He handled his guilt in the wrong way. Instead of enduring the pain and letting the pain draw him toward God in his mercy, he ended the pain in his own way. There's another verse, or actually, I'm sorry, um, well, there is actually, from Romans. Romans 5, 8, that Taylor had mentioned earlier, it says, but God has shown shown us how much he loves us, it was while we were still what? Sinners that Christ did what? Died for us. He's showing that when we were engaged in destructive behaviors, destructive to ourselves and others, when we were breaking God's heart and breaking his laws and breaking ourselves, Christ loved us enough then to die for us. He sacrificially loved us. Now, in this portion of Scripture in Luke 22, we have the institution of something we call today communion or the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe that today. We're going to observe it at an unusual time in the middle of the message. We're going to observe it in just a minute or so. And then we're going to go back to Luke 22, and you're going to see where Jesus instituted it that night. But guilt is such a powerful thing, and it's so hard for human beings to shake, that it appears that Jesus gave us these physical elements as a way to just reinforce in our minds, in our hearts, in our consciences, that truly God not only forgives us and chooses to forget what we have done, but that he wants us to have a mechanism to assure our own hearts that it's okay for us to forgive ourselves and to forget those things that we cannot do anything about. So... We're going to take a moment, and here's some instructions. Uh, ushers will dismiss you by rows, so walk to the front of your section and pick up two stacked cups, and then return to your seat holding your elements. Uh, one couple have the little bit of bread, the other couple have a little bit of juice. So the ushers are going to come forward, and very quickly, they're going to start moving the rows. Back in Luke chapter 22, kind of get your context again, verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this 
and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in, what does it say? Remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, in just hours, they would see Jesus on the cross battered and bloody and they would as Jews recognize oh my goodness all those Passover lambs for 1500 years those that understood would all know that's what it was about and Jesus when he's telling them these elements represent my body and my blood poured out they couldn't completely understand it then but once they saw him on the cross it made sense forevermore now notice it said do this in remembrance of me I know that some of you you come from backgrounds where you're taught uh, from church tradition that when you partake of this little bit of bread that it mystically transforms into the body of Christ and it infuses some kind of a magical grace in you. That is utterly untrue. There's, that's not taught anywhere. And if you've lived long enough and taken it long enough, you know it doesn't magically change you from the inside out. The way God's chosen to change us from the inside out is by revealing His truth to us, winning our trust, and then He waits for us to put it into practice and that changes you from the inside out. What this is to do is to help us remember that through Jesus there is forgiveness of sins. And that our God loves us with a sacrificial love, get this part, with full knowledge of everything that has ever gone on in our life, everything we've ever done, those things we wish desperately we could go back and undo. And he dies for us to prove that's the kind of love he has for us. He wants us to be able to, to know, we that have returned to him in trust, to know we are his people, we are his beloved, we are forgiven, we are safe and secure. So each time we take this little bit of bread and this little bit of wine, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken, his blood poured out to let us know we are eternally loved and that when we return to our creator and trust we can then wear that certainty of forgiveness so let's remember our lord's body as we take this little piece of bread it says he took the cup and he said it was to represent their blood they didn't know what it meant then but they sure would know in a few hours when they saw him on the cross let's remember the sacrificial love of our lord together So this brings us then to the solution, the one singular solution for guilt. And the, the world that we live in today, it offers all kinds of solutions for guilt. In some cases, it just says guilt is a myth. It's just something that you kind of receive from culture. It's nothing more than that. Other times, the way we try to deal with our guilt is we try to minimize it. You know, we compare it to other things. Oh, well, it's not so bad, all things considered. Sometimes we legitimize it. Well, the world's changed. Everybody's doing it now. Sometimes we, we try to blame it on others. Well, it's, if it weren't for that person or that set of circumstances, I wouldn't have been this or done that or got involved with the other. So we do all these inefficient things. They don't work. They don't work. There's no drug that can resolve human guilt. 
There's no set of counseling that can resolve human guilt. Human guilt has to be taken back to the creator himself, and it has to be resolved there. There's only one way. Peter ultimately has his guilt resolved by a face-to-face meeting with Jesus. And I want to take you there. Turn, if you would, to page 1228 in those Bibles near you, and we're going to read just a few verses from John 21. When you come to John 21, we're going to start reading in verse 15 through 19. Jesus has now risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples alive. This is now the third occasion. Now, here's the key to this portion of Scripture. The disciples, Peter in particular, who was a professional fisherman, Jesus had called him away from his professional fishing business and said, Come follow me, be my taladim, be the one that will carry on my work. And Peter had done that, but now he had gone back fishing. And he and probably James and John were fishing too, and Jesus sees them. He's alive from the dead. He's cooking breakfast for them on the shore, and he waits till they get to the shore. And then he pulls Peter aside, and he has this conversation. Now, how many times did Peter deny that he knew Jesus? Three. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 15. Then when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? Because if you read the other gospels, Peter protested, they all may desert you, Lord, but I'll never desert you. So now Jesus is saying, do you? Do you love me more than they do? He goes on. Peter's reply, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, Feed my lambs. That's young believers, young followers of Christ. Build them up on truth. That's what it means to feed them. Verse 16. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord. You know I love you. Jesus told him, shepherd my sheep. These are more mature followers. They're sheep. They need to be guided, directed, protected, so forth. Verse 17. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Peter was distressed. Then Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus replied, Feed my sheep. Now, there's a portion here in verse 19 that's easy to not quite understand the meaning. Jesus said to said this to indicate clearly about what kind of death Peter was going to die or or what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And he said this, or excuse me, after he said this, Jesus told Peter, and what did he tell him? Two words. Follow me. Why was this important? Peter had gone back fishing. Peter was called to be the leader. Peter had been called before by Jesus to come follow him, to be his his unique follower that would pass on the faith to give his life to it, but Peter no longer felt worthy. And so Jesus has him restored. Jesus was not rubbing in the three denials. He was rubbing out the guilt. Each time he was having Peter look him in the eyes and say, you know I love you, Lord, you know I love you. He was finally facing his failure, but facing it in the presence and with the assured love of God. And Jesus is saying, you are still my man. You still got a job. Go back. Do what I first called you to do. Follow me. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my lambs and so forth. 
And so this was true restoration. There's only one singular way that guilt can really be resolved. Here's a few verses to just reinforce this. Psalm 32, David once again, he says, Before I confess my sins, what did he do? Before I confessed them, owned them, I kept it all inside. My dishonesty devastated my inner life, causing my life to be filled with frustration, irrepressible anguish, and misery. Now, there are some people that because they don't resolve their guilt the one way it can be resolved, this is what they live with. It's low grade, but it keeps them in a state of discomfort, and they do lots of different things to avoid that feeling. Let me share you another one. He says, then I finally admitted to you all my sins, refusing to hide them any longer. I said, my life-giving God, I will openly acknowledge my evil actions, and you did what? Just owning it before God and you forgave me all at once the guilt of my sin washed away and all my what is the word pain disappeared pause in his presence it's when we get into the presence of God own who we are and confession of sin is not just confessing what we've done but confessing why we did it let's open our rotten selfish motives before God because he sees them anyway we just need to see him in his presence and know that he still loves us and there's mercy and then guilt can really be resolved until then it doesn't get resolved it just goes a little deeper in the soul and it continues to let off its poison contaminating every part of our life ultimately Shannon, I started talking about a 16-year-old girl that had a horrific accident, brought her to the place where she attempted to commit suicide twice. When she went to trial, she was forced to face the husband that was left behind of the lady. His name was Gary Jarfstar. His wife's name was Marjorie. Well, when Shannon, this 16-year-old, sees this man. He's coming toward her, and she doesn't know what to expect in his eyes, but she notices pretty quickly she doesn't see, she doesn't see anger in his eyes. And before she knows what's happening, he grabs her and he hugs her. And then he said these words. I don't want you to let this ruin your life. God wants to use you through this. As a matter of fact, I'm passing, I'm passing Marjorie's legacy of being a godly woman onto you. I want you to learn to love Jesus without limits the way Marjorie did. Shannon Etheridge, that 16-year-old girl, has been serving Jesus now for over 31 years. She's written 22 Christian books, one of which is called Loving Jesus without limits. I think we have a picture of her. There she is. All because of the power of the forgiveness of God flowing through a human being, Gary Jarstow. You know what? There's one thing worse. There's one thing worse than not being able to have our own guilt resolved. It'll do more damage inside a human being than not being able to know we're forgiven. It is refusing to forgive someone else. And some of you are cursed right now because you refuse. You refuse to give to somebody else what you desperately know you need yourself, forgiveness. You're still holding a grudge. You're still bitter. You're still angry. 
you're still holding somebody where they owe you something. Do yourself a favor and give to them what God gives freely to you and to I, forgiveness. Because when you hold unforgiveness and bitterness for someone, you, you're just you're holding acid inside yourself. It's going to eat you alive. So I hope you'll walk out of here today the way that I suspect Peter felt after that last meeting with Jesus. Finally, fully forgiven. It's one thing to know up here that I'm forgiven. It's another thing to feel in here I'm forgiven. Past is past. It's gone. God chooses to remember it no more, he says in his word. And we must choose to forget it and remember it no more ourselves. Now, i got to tell you, there's going to be people in your lives, they won't forget it. Um, and they'll make sure that you remember it for the rest of your life. You've got to choose not to listen to those people. And frankly, if you can, to put a boundary between yourself and those people. They'll kill your soul. So... I hope we'll all leave here today with God's one way of resolving guilt. And you'll walk out of here with your soul lifted from its weight, free. And that one thing that you always felt uncomfortable about, you never could quite shake, that this will be the day that forevermore you will trust in the mercy and the love of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the certainty that you know us and you love us still. Thank you for the certainty of mercy and forgiveness, thank you for these little symbols like the communion elements that help us to once again remind ourselves that the curse of guilt might be completely taken from us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.